0: The producer doesn't travel. The director travels to Hollywood, but the producer rarely. But that's exactly the case. So how did you travel?
1: Welcome to the Filmmaking Experience podcast, where we bring you exclusive interviews and insights into the world of international film production and the people behind the scenes who make it all happen. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with film producer and Hope Studio founder, Friedrich Wikström-Nicastro, whose recent movie... A man called Otto has grossed more than a hundred million dollars at the
0: International Film Box office. Join us as we sit down with Frederick to discuss his creative process, the challenges of producing a film on this scale,
1: and the secrets behind the international success of a man called Otto.
0: So welcome to the podcast, producer Fredrik Wikström. Nicastro. Thank you, Marit. So good to be back. Today we're gonna focus on the journey to get this movie made, A Man Called Otto. And to give some context to how, like we've talked about in the intro, how a Swedish producer produces a movie with Tom Hanks, we have to rewind a bit. Take us back to the time when you first heard of the book A Man Called Uwe*. And if I can recall correctly, you optioned the book before it was even released. Correct. So I was the head of feature
1: films at uh, this production company called Trivenne that was uh, acquired by SF Studios a couple of years after. One of our book scouts, Janni stjernstrom Björk, who I, I think mentioned the book first to me. And then it was Thomas Stevenmark, another of the Tre Vänner founders who read it. And it was something that everyone at the company was very excited about this book. The story was obviously super strong. Pachman was a journalist. He had written in magazines on, on online he had never written a book and we never expected the book to be a bestseller but the the story was so complete and sweet and heartfelt that we just thought this is a nice little Swedish film. let's make it and if it doesn't really matter if the book sells through, it's a nice story so, we
0: acquired it we but we, it was a book proposal yeah it was a script for the book that was about to be published okay so but can you tell us uh, the audience it's not uncommon that a publisher or an agent yeah we had we had a relationship with that publisher bonnier and
1: they kept sending us uh upcoming scripts that were supposed to be published so we read the book when it was 95% finished and i remember frederick backman who came to our office super grateful that someone liked his book and you're interested in making a movie about this book you know i i haven't even published it he was so grateful and happy he could never have expected that the book in the end had sold now eight nine million copies around the world has become a huge bestseller
0: so we were very lucky yeah career-wise what was your headspace at because i I recall Around this time, you you were trying to get an international version of Easy Money yeah. going, a, a remake. Yeah, so I
1: had produced a couple of years before this Swedish film Snabba Cash, Easy Money. That was a huge success in Sweden and that also made a big splash in Hollywood. And we had made a deal with Warner Brothers to make an American version of it with Zac Efron attached to Star. And what producer was it? Yes, Chuck Roven and Richard Suckel at Atlas, who is the producer of the Batman movies, uh, the Dark Knight trilogy. So that was something that I was engaged in. And I would say that before, I mean, Snabba I never had an idea really about making international films, especially out of Sweden, because in in Scandinavia we don't have that tradition. And there has been attempts at making English language films out of Scandinavia. Uh, When I was exposed to all the interest from Hollywood on Cash. I was kind of thrown into that world. I had meetings with all the big studio executives, with big filmmakers and producers, and they were pitching me because they wanted the rights for the American version of this film. And, and this world kind of opened up to me. Like I knew about Hollywood. I'd never been there. I'd never been uh, exposed to it, but I, I was very Intrigued by it and then when I had worked with Daniel Espinosa the director very closely on this film and he went on to make this film with Denzel Washington's safe house. I was also quite involved in his journey because, because we were friends and the idea about making international films out of Europe was something that started to grow. And when I went to more senior producers in Scandinavia, at that time people that I looked up to that were kind of role models, they all advised me not to do that. They said that's a recipe for disaster. We should keep doing the things that keeps us protected from Hollywood, work in our own language, do our own things in Swedish. And those who have tried has failed miserably and lost a lot of money. With some exceptions, yeah. can you talk about uh, some European companies that you thought? You'd... I'm only talking about Scandinavia. Okay. There, are, there are definitely uh, European companies that have made it and taking UK aside because they're English language. So it's easier for companies there, I would say, but uh, there, I would say that the most prolific and successful companies that has done it are uh, German and French. So we have in France, we have a Rupa Corp that was very successful with uh, Luc Besson's company. When he did Taken, for instance, he did a trilogy with Liam Neeson and Lucy with Scarlett Johansson, for instance, and many others. And we also have uh, Studio Canal, which is more of a studio rather than a production company. But they they have been very successful over the years and done films in various genres, both Paddington and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. In Germany, I would say that Constantine is maybe the most prolific one. Uh, They made all the Resident Evil movies and many others. So there are examples with European producers doing things in English language, but in Scandinavia, I would say that not many successful ones. Had been made at that time, so I was I was intrigued by it, and uh, that was a journey that I I had uh, an idea trying to figure out how to do that. That was ten years ago, and uh, it's been a journey I've been doing now for for that amount of time. And this is the the third film that I produced now out of Sweden, which uh, has been English language.
0: Let's talk a bit about the the setup, because a man called Oro is a Swedish production yes we'll get into exactly how that came to be but that's what we're talking about it's at this time that we we're trying to stay in uh, when you were talking to Hollywood about the easy money remake oh. they were pursuing the rights and that they were gonna produce it and you you'd be uh, safe from potential uh, disaster uh, but also if it's a success you wouldn't get that uh, or get to share that success so was it to like stay in the game? You wanted to produce it in Sweden, yeah. So
1: normally, when Hollywood makes uh, a Hollywood version of an international film, it could be The Ring, or it could be Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, or Let the Right One In, out of Sweden, or uh, The Upside from from France of the, of the, Into the The normal thing is that you sell the rights to Hollywood, a Hollywood player, a Hollywood studio. And the original rights holders or the producers, they might get a producer credit. They basically get money up front and they're not involved and they don't have a risk or skin in the game. Uh, that is the normal model. And I would say that all the American Hollywood remakes that you've seen, 99% have this setup. And that was what we did with Snubba Cash uh, and Sack Efron, the film that never happened. But that was the setup we did. So, what we've done with A Man Called Otto is that SF Studios have kept the rights. We produced the original film, we have not sold the rights, we have developed it. And when we started to develop it, we hired this writer. We have kept the rights to to the film all the way through, and then we also financed the film. So, we acted as a studio ourselves. So, it was our owner, Bonnier, who financed the film fully. And then we greenlit the film at a budget range that we thought was the right. And we put it into production. Of course, we took a huge risk. You know, maybe you can say we have Tom Hanks. What kind of risk can you have when you have Tom Hanks? But that wasn't the way the board looked at it. They looked at it as a big risk. Uh, But we also owned the film completely. We owned 100% of the film. And then when we sold it to Sony, we also took the upside. I've been on set, you know, every day for four months in Pittsburgh and all the way through post-production, we have been running the production as a studio as well. So it's a much, much bigger commitment, both with your time and energy in your hands on, both commercially and artistically, but you also have the upside and you have control of the film. Mm. If you sell the rights, you basically let the buyers take control of the film. Mm.
0: But if we go back to the... Zach Efron version of Easy Money that uh, was never made. You're taking meetings in Hollywood, you're seeing uh, Daniel Espinosa's career take off. Joel Kinnaman, whose uh, major international breakthrough was Easy Money, is also doing Robocop uh, around this time, the remake, but uh, back to your office in Sweden. Like... Uh, why why aren't they hiring me to do Robocop yeah. as a producer?
1: No, but I think that... Well, uh, that must have been a drive, or like, you know... Yeah, it was, but uh, it's also different because as a producer, you are more the entrepreneur who sets up the whole project. You set up uh, the rights and the, f- the financing and, and the scripts. So why would you hire a producer to go to Hollywood unless you have set up a project that Hollywood wants? It doesn't make sense, but an actor or a director is is more clearly an artist that you can bring in, work for hire into this big machinery. Like you have uh, Seifal, was it a, was a great script and Nelson Washington is a great star. So Danielle coming in to direct that really, you know, he fits that big machinery really well. Me coming in, like if I would at that time produce a film like Robocop or Safehouse, I didn't know where to start. You know, the legal aspect, the financial aspect is so different. And that's also something that I've learned throughout this 10 year journey. So on A Man Called Otto, we did everything in the American fashion, legally, mm. financially, with unions, everything was done in the American way. And that is something as a European producer, you have to learn that because it's different from how you, the business model and the, everything. It's, it's a lot of know-how. But as an actor, of course, you have to learn maybe the English language, but the, the, the craft is exactly the same. Mm. But for a
0: producer, it's, it's a lot of know-how that you need to learn. Did you meet any interesting uh, people while uh, developing or, or being part of the potential remake of Snubba Cash? <laughs> yeah,
1: it's funny you ask that because I actually met one person that is going to be big part of this podcast, I think, the director Mark Forrester. So he had directed uh, Monsters Ball and Finding Neverland and Kite Runner, I think, at the time. And he approached me and said he loved Snubba Cash and he was interested in remaking it for, for Hollywood. So we met a few times back then, I loved his movies and I thought he was a great person Uh, but uh, it didn't turn out that way with the Zac Efron setup that he was on board with that project but uh, so he was for one example. Um, then we can get back to that later when we talk more about uh, the setup of a man called Otto. But he, he was someone I met. But of course, I met a lot of producers and studio executives. So
0: it, the, uh, the whole Hollywood world opened up to me when, when that happened. I've heard a lot of stories about the, the, the Swedish way. We're very, a bit shorter, more concrete. It's a bit of a culture shock when they're doing the Hollywood rounds for some. Like, because... People are very enthusiastic in Hollywood. And I'm very interested in these
1: differences because I also think that uh, there are so many strengths with the European film industry and the European culture, but there are also a lot of strength with the American culture and business culture and, and the Hollywood system. So I have been very focused on trying to figure out the pros and cons with the two different cultures and mindsets. And I don't see that one or the other is better than the other. I just think that there are so many aspects that you can learn from the other and trying to look at things both from the European and the American way. And what I've been trying to do, I'm still based in Sweden. I'm not going to move to America, but I want to only do English language films from now on. And I'm trying to always find that spot where I try to Both in the way I work, but also in the films that I do try to find that sweet spot when you mix the best things out of Europe and America. Because I think uh, that's a very magic sweet spot. Just culturally, uh, business-wise, obviously America is much more business savvy. Legally, it's much heavier. uh, They have a system with agents and lawyers that is, for Europeans, very, very not common. We're not used to that system, Um, they're very optimistic, they they believe very much in dreams and things that are possible and that's something that I'm very attracted to, that that way of doing things. Uh, In Europe and in in Scandinavia we can be very gloomy and pessimistic about uh, the possibilities and I think that shines through also in our stories. You know, I think that someone said to me something that I really enjoyed saying, like the big difference between European cinema and American cinema is that in America, you tell the audience that everyone has a destiny. But in Europe, you tell everyone that you have a fate. And I think that's something that is very clear about that. Like I think Europe, we've been struggling with wars and civil wars and plague for hundreds of years. And we we can look at the world very pessimistically sometimes here while America is a new nation and people travel there, they believed in a dream, they believed in a new world. So I still think that even though America has its problems, they still have a mindset that is more optimistic and, and that shines through in, in their films. And, and European audiences, they love stories that are optimistic. It's not like we are attracted to depressing content. We also love stories that, sh- that gives us a promise of a destiny or, or a happy ending.
0: I've heard there's a like also a duality in a uh, Hollywood executive that they know what type of movies will draw the audiences to the multiplexes, but that doesn't necessarily have to be their own tastes. Uh-huh. So someone's favorite movie can be 21 Grams, but they do like uh, Mean Girls 3. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, that's the business. Yeah. And there's a duality some people so. don't understand. So I think people think everyone in Hollywood just thinks about money or or producers in general but it's a duality i think you have to know how to navigate absolutely and i love in hollywood that people who works in the film industry they are really passionate
1: about films and if you talk to people in hollywood they have seen everything they watch all the oscar contenders they've seen all the french movies from the 60s they are really passionate about films and sometimes here in europe even though in Europe films is is more considered as art than entertainment and in Hollywood it's the other way around, more entertainment and business rather than art. I would say that I I feel more at home, I'm a film buff just as you are Maurizio I I love talking about movies, I I eat and drink and, and dream movies and in Hollywood people are like that they have that mindset and in Europe I think people, they don't watch everything that comes out, they usually haven't seen the big blockbusters, they haven't they're not aware in the same way. I'm, I'm a bit amazed why that is. But you're right. It's it's a duality in that. And uh, Hollywood is business more than an art. But that also means that Hollywood has more resources. They have better crews. They have better audience focus, better audience reach. So I think there is a lot of things in Hollywood that we can learn from, from Europe.
0: Yeah, and also I think what uh, might attract Hollywood to remake movies mm. or, or take talent from Europe is that they think we're freer here, and which is true, yeah. because Hollywood, one of the positive things, it's uh, in the industry, it's the machinery, you know how to make a movie, but sometimes that can be very limited. I, I attended a master class with a, a showrunner from the States, and he said, oh, you know, how, how, how did you get to make the, that important scene in the bridge, like a master, like you're outside the apartment, watching through the window, and and the showrunner here was like, yeah, we didn't have any money, so everyone was like, cool. Well, what well he said, you know, in in Hollywood, he he has to have all the coverage, mm. anyway. Mm. And at the end of the day, you use the coverage. He was fighting the machinery, and here with like lack of uh of money, resources. of resources, money gave uh gave people artistic opportunity, but that's just like uh. A perspective like you could say yeah, yeah okay. we didn't have the resources but also in Europe uh, one of the upsides
1: with our system is that we see films more art rather than business so we give directors really an opportunity to develop their voice to, to develop their language that's something when directors do that in Europe and, and manage to also attract an audience then they become very very attractive to Hollywood because they love directors with a significant voice. They love directors that can bring a flavor because also Hollywood is very uh, reliant on the international box office or the international marketplace. So having a Korean or a French or a Scandinavian filmmaker with a certain voice, matching that with their IP and their audience driven kind of stories is something that they're really, really attracted. Too. So, uh, but I'm also a bit, sometimes I think it's a bit sad that we spend so much money in Europe to develop with film schools and the film institutes all these fantastic European directors and usually they make these small films that are irrelevant and no one cares about them, but when they start to make something that is more audience driven, those directors tend to go into that big system and, and the European industry doesn't benefit from that. That's something that I've always said also with, with the rights talking about A Man Called Over, the book, we were lucky or good enough to make a really good Swedish film, a big success. And Frederick Batman wrote a fantastic book. That's an asset that should be stay, remain in Sweden, that should remain in Europe and we should benefit from it. We shouldn't be a big Hollywood studio that just benefits everything. Mm. So that has been one of the speeches I've been saying internally at SF and Bonnier all the time. Uh, so it's not only about filmmakers, but also I think the IPs, if we can benefit from them in Europe, I think that's more
0: the way it should be. Since you mentioned the Swedish uh, movie, you were an executive producer yes. on that. Were you head of film while yes. that was being developed? Yes. Could you give us like a overview of that film's journey? So as I
1: said before, it was a great story, but we didn't expect the, the book to be a bestseller. We started to develop it and the lead producers of the film was uh, Annika Ballander and Niklas Wikstrom nicastro And I was uh, overseeing it as an executive producer together with Michael Jurt at that time. And uh, Hannes Holm was the writer and director of the Swedish film. So he wrote the adaptation of Frederick's book and he wrote a fantastic script. Like the first
0: draft of Hannes' script was something you could just shoot. So I would say... Hiring him is the equivalent of hiring Ron Howard to... Uh... Yeah, I mean, if
1: in in that sense that he's a really good writer-director that has a very strong audience appeal. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, it was really Hannah's choice to go with Rolf Lascord, who was the actor playing over the film uh, when it was edited and completed. was a very good film. It tested very well in audiences, but in all honesty, no one anticipated it to be as successful as it turned out to be. I remember very clearly the the discussions we had with the distribution team and the estimates that we had they were, we exceeded them like many, many times over. So I, at the end of the day the film became the third biggest Swedish film ever. It's like the, a bigger success in Sweden than the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo for instance, which is hard for maybe international people to, to relate to, but it
0: was a huge success. Like you said, it was a a good movie, people really enjoyed it and liked it. But it had that sleeper hit potential, I think. You can but you can a movie with a sleeper hit potential is just that it's potential. So you never know how a human story about like a grumpy old man can become so big. It's impossible to predict that. I agree and I also think that I've been living with
1: this book for such a long time since I was involved in both the Swedish film and now the American version. So I've been thinking about this a lot. And I also think that there are some very universal themes in the book that Fredrik Backman wrote that just taps into people so strongly. Like one aspect is that it has a very strong humanity, the story. There is this saying that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover or another one that I like even more, which is that it's almost impossible to hate someone once you've heard that person's story. And I think this book incorporates that so beautifully because you look at Otto or Ove at the beginning very much from the outside. He's a grumpy guy. He's, you know, you you judge him by his cover, but then as the story unfolds, you understand more and more of his layers of his past, who he was, what he wanted, his dreams, his traumas. And all of a sudden you see him with a new light because you've heard his story and he does the same journey with the neighbors in the neighborhood. He sees this new family moving in next door. He judged the book by his cover. He thinks they're idiots. He thinks they are in a certain way. But he gets to know them and he hears their story. And he changes uh, his perspective just as we change our perspective on him. So I think that's something very, very relatable. Then there is also this uh, theme about hope. I think it's a very hopeful story. Otto has given up on life. But he realizes that life hasn't really given up on him. And we go on a journey when we experience him healing and connecting with other people and he finds meaning and purpose in helping others and being part of a community. In the end, he basically finds a new family just across the street. And I think that's something that is also deeply, deeply universal. We can all struggle in our lives. We all have pain. And I think it's something very uh, universal about unity and connecting with with new people that um, it's a lesson we all need to learn. and. You know, the book has been a huge success now in China. It was a huge success in America and obviously in, in Europe. So in retrospect, I think the the book just hit so many magical themes that also made it more than just an entertaining, heartfelt story. It's something yeah. that just taps into deep things.
0: Yep, yeah, These themes, they're very important. They're yeah. very universal, but they're also like they're in almost every story. I saw, I re-saw a movie yesterday, Aloha by Cameron Crowe. Yeah. And uh, you could say that on paper it's also like about people needing people and, uh, you know, 98% of the movie you could say, you know, it had the biggest stars of the time. It it had all the themes and everything but it just didn't, you know, stick the landing. Now, why do you think that's the case? I mean, it's execution-based also. As the budget goes up, you know, certain expectations are put upon the movie and maybe the small things that actually make can make a movie a sleeper hit get uh, washed away you know
1: yeah i mean i think that my view is a film is very satisfying and triggers uh audience to recommend it if a film uh, has three things one that it's entertaining two is that you emotionally connect to the story and three is that you are touched by the themes or the meaningfulness of the story connects and I think you need all those three. And uh, when you do that, when it you serve an entertaining story and you feel emotionally connected and the themes connect as well, that's when you have a hit. And I think in terms of the themes that we talked about in A Man Called Over the book and the, uh, the American version, A Man Called Otto, uh, I think these themes are not something that just comes in at the end of the day, like a little morality tale, like in the last scene is something just it's so deeply engraved in the story structure, so it really, you cannot, it doesn't feel forced or it doesn't feel like something that a filmmaker or a film executive just trying to put on there to to serve some kind of morality. It's something that's so deeply engraved in the way the story is told. That could be one of the answers, but it's it's a good question. Um, I think when you serve themes in a way where it feels forced, Uh, you don't buy it as much as it is uh, engraved in in the DNA. Like in Star Wars, for instance, I think one of the reasons why it's one of the biggest successes ever is that it taps into the question about are we good or evil? are we light or dark, which is something we all can relate to. Kids can relate to that and grown ups and the, the, the thing about the force and the darks and the, and the destiny that you yeah, mentioned. Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, I think that's, that's engraved in the DNA of Star Wars, that it isn't something that you just put it on there as a morality tale. It's something that is, you, you, all the movies, every scene with Luke Skywalker is kind of, is is going to choose the dark or the light path? So, and that becomes a theme that is very meaningful then. So I think that's the way to work with themes. And, you know, Avatar is obviously uh, an example where themes are very strong and it's thus, it's not forced, it's part of the story structure.
0: Yeah, but uh, a movie like Jupiter Ascending, <laughs> Channing Tatum, it has like, everything that star wars has on paper like alien yeah. races you mm. know kingdoms and sky a hero's journey yeah. for a, like an earthling yeah. you know meets an alien so that also shows that it's execution yes. based what are the pros and cons of adapting a book Because mm. you have some sort of like a road map a lot of strengths but also maybe you know you're stuck with some some stuff.
1: Yeah, so when we made A Man Called Otto, we had the fortune of. We had already made A Man Called Dove in Sweden. So we had already tried things with Hannes Holmes' film. So when David McGee, the scriptwriter who wrote A Man Called Otto, is a twice Oscar nominated Hollywood scriptwriter, is very, very good writer. He had the fortune of using the book and Hannah's home script and kind of take the, the best things out of both, so that was a very fortunate position to be in. Sometimes you can be very truthful to a book, like uh, A Man Called Over, the book isn't that thick, it's two, 300 pages, so it is possible to make most of the story elements of the book into a feature films. But if you make an f- adaptation when I did Snubback Ashes, which is a film you you talked about before, that is a 650 page book. It's impossible to include everything in a two hour movie. So you have to take out big chunks of a book, w- which is also hard. And then you come into like, what is really the essence of a big book? Uh, what are the themes? What are the, the core? What's the tone? What's the, the soul of the book? And I think trying to identify that and try to adapt that if you can identify the DNA or the soul or the the themes then I think you can always take out characters or beats or chapters or events but if you have the feeling um, then people are usually happy because they remember the feeling from the book but they don't always remember all the chapters
0: that's the that's the tricky part that's a hard one the second time around, now that Ove became Oscar nominated, it, it did the decent business as a niche yeah. movie internationally. Uh, did you get like, oh, here we go again with uh, offers from Hollywood yes, sure. about the remake? Yes, for sure. But the di- it was
1: a different situation now because I had already started this journey of trying to make international films out of Sweden and Europe. And I had done, the first film that I did was like a kind of a hybrid version, Borg versus McEnroe, which was mostly English language, but also some Swedish language, which was a tennis drama about the rivalry between Björn Borg and John McEnroe. And that was a $10 million film, a drama. And then uh, I did a $20 million action movie called Horizon Line, which is a plain disaster survival film that takes place in a crashing plane, the 90 minutes crashing plane basically so I was really I was warm know. I warmed up to the idea of making a big film out of uh, Europe, I've already done t- two international films out of Sweden so uh, all those offers I turned them down, we, we weren't interested at this point to do that, we wanted to produce and develop it ourselves so I had started to take meetings with Uh, some talent and, uh, you know, ways to set up the American version. And I was approached also by some actors and talent who was interested in partnering with, with me and us on the American version. And were there like big names with own companies? Yes, yes. Uh, I was then in Hollywood and I was actually there in relation to the Oscar race for A Man Called Over and I was having meetings like this and then my phone uh, rings and uh, I, Richard Lovett the president of CIA calls me and says that uh, yeah I'm just wondering I'm hearing that you're trying to make a version of A Man Called Ova in America so do you have a, a talent attached or where are you with it no no I'm, I'm having meetings yeah, because I have an actor here who I represent who's interested in playing the lead. Yeah, who's that? Tom Hanks. <laughs> so that was kind of a good phone call. And I was pretending like that—that that's a phone call I get every day. And then I said, yeah, but I'm actually in LA. So if, if he's around, maybe we can meet. And then he set up a meeting like in five minutes. So next morning I meet him at his office in Playtown in Santa Monica. And he's like the best. He's just pitching himself. I'm sitting in his office and he's pitching him to me like he wants to work uh, in my movie rather it should be the other way around um, and then at the end of of this meeting he said yeah but if you don't want to develop it and do produce it with me I'm I'm happy also for you to come back when you have a script and I can give you an addition and then you can decide and <laughs> so you know he's just uh, so charming and nice guy so it was hard to turn down that offer, so we decided to partner with him and Rita Wilson, who is uh, also uh, the lead producer together with me, we'd produced the film together. And then Tom and Gary Goldman of Playtone produced it too. So
0: we uh, had developed it together, and this was five years ago. If you go back to, the, you know, you're attending the Oscars with the movie... Mm. It's a pretty good time to be having meetings about a potential Hollywood version, right? Can you talk about there have been certain times in your career when you get, like, positive wins? Uh, Like when you made the Swedish easy money. I think for one weekend it overtook Avatar at the local box office, Mm. and that meant something. Someone in Hollywood said, hey, wait a minute, you know. uh, When a movie makes enough money, people notice, even if it's locally. Absolutely. But how do you handle when everybody wants a piece of you? I think you, you shouldn't take success
1: nor failure personally. Like I've I've worked for uh, 14, 15 years now in the industry and I've had some huge successes a couple of times, but I also had a lot of disappointments and, and failures as well. And I think it's just part of uh, the journey to always improve and never let your ego take over when you have a success and don't let your demons take over when you fail either. It's not personal. Sometimes things just doesn't work out. And when they work out, you're not God. You're not the best filmmaker in the world either. So um, no, but uh, on the other hand, uh, as you say, when you have success, you can strike while the iron is hot. You, You should build on that keep uh, your feet on the ground uh, but build on that and I I think I've been I've been trying to do that uh, you know in the times that I've done that and Snubba Cash which was my big first success I built a huge big part of my career from that film because we made two sequels uh, theatrical films that were also successful and now we've also done a successful Netflix TV show so it's been an i p that we've been basically nurturing for ten years in different ways. So when a man called over to make a big American version of this success with Tom Hanks is uh, obviously you know reaching very high, but that was what we tried to set up at that time, yeah
0: now, after the fact, I think uh, Rita has publicly told about what happened behind the scenes even before you got the call yeah. <laughs> and maybe this ties to what we talked about like how hollywood can see foreign cinema see some freshness there something like oh exactly. I, I think we should do that maybe this was a, a very clear example of that tell us what happened Don't, in from, the in the from her, home. from her
1: perspective uh she was watching the the years uh, international nominees for best international film and she was actually going through the DVDs of that year and she was watching uh, one of them with Tom, which happened to be a man called over. And as they were watching the film, they both uh, connected strongly to it. And uh, she wanted to be part of an American version and he wanted to play the lead. So that was like, uh, that was, I don't know. Maybe they would have discovered the film if we hadn't been in the Oscar
0: race, maybe, but that was how it happened. Mm Yeah, but, uh, and he has said this himself. I think, you know, he saw a great part. Sometimes you see something, you really like it, it wakes a fire in you. Yeah. I think this acting-wise maybe uh, awoke something in him. Absolutely. Or?
1: Yeah, and I would say both Tom and and also Mark Forrester, they all li- really loved Hame's film. So they came in with a, uh, a lot of admiration of the first film. Um, but of course they wanted to do an American adaptation. They wanted to do a bigger film that could reach a, a global audience on another level, but they basically felt like there is a perfect version already out there, but they connected very strongly to the material, so and they wanted to do a bigger version of it.
0: And that's something that A Man called Uwe and A Man called Otto have in common with Easy Money, because mm. we've talked about a lot about the movie Easy Money here, but maybe I should tell briefly what it's about. It's basically a working class kid who lives a double life yeah. as a rich guy. And then he starts
1: to do drug uh, trafficking deals in order to finance this uh, lifestyle. So I think that book, when it came out, also hit a very strong nerve in society, how things were changing in Sweden with because we became more superficial and more materialistic. And it was a great story too, so yeah.
0: Yeah, but you, you can from an American perspective, also see the allure. Yes. Because, you know, you have to find the right leading man and also find like, is it a Hamptons guy? You know, what is it? But it was there was something fresh and there was something to figure out in a potential remake. And that thing, sometimes that's what you need. Like the potential remaker (laughs) has something to do. And then it feels like, you know, it's not just a copy. You know, there's something to overcome. And maybe you never 100% overcame that with uh, Easy Money remake. Maybe it will come yeah. someday, who knows. But with Otto in Sweden, is a Middle Eastern neighbor, you know, and of course you think if you do it in the States, it should be someone from Mexico or Latin America. It's yeah. more, you know, so already that's a part of why you see, you know, can justify a remake. Absolutely. But I also think that the themes of A Man Called
1: Over about unity, about community and humanistic uh, view of, of each other is something that just feels more relevant now than it did 2015 when the Swedish film was made. I mean, especially if you look at it from an American perspective, if there has, it's happened a lot of things in America in the last seven years that uh, I think these themes and and this message uh, is needed much more and it's more relevant now than it was seven years ago. And so so it is in Sweden and Europe. I mean, I think society has become more polarized and I think this is hopefully a story that will give hope and, you know, uh, the opposite of what you get all the time from social media and the news, which is just depressing, you know, news about how the world is falling apart. I think this is a story that gives us hope in humanity and community.
0: Yeah, of course. But I was alluding to filmmaking is collaboration. People yeah. need stuff to do. So I think, you know, if a movie is perfect but and there's nothing really to exactly. adapt, then, you know, you, you really should let it be. And sometimes, you know, you remake stuff that's like a carbon copy of the original and it doesn't go anywhere. So, but both Easy Money and Malcolm Come Over have this element that... And maybe because Sweden is, you know, it's a bit different to America, but also it's one of the European countries that's more like America, Mm -hmm. to be honest. We're very like influenced by American culture and that maybe it's uh, why, you know, a Swedish IP can, uh, you know, uh, potentially be interesting for Hollywood because it's, you know, very similar but still different enough. Yeah, and I would say, in this instance, it was very
1: much uh, Mark Forrester who came in. uh, When David McGee started to write the first draft, Mark was already attached to direct. So he was influencing the script already from the first draft. And he had some very clear perspectives on things that he wanted to do in the remake that he worked very closely with Dave in the script like Mark had very strong ideas about for instance the flashbacks that is very different in this version than in both the book and the Swedish film because in this version of the film Otto is more living in the past so the past comes and goes through his reality through his sees reflections or he hears sounds of the past and then you kind of travel into his backstory through visual cues and then you go back and sound and visuals from the past and present are kind of inter Twined. That was something that Mark came very early with with that idea because he didn't want to kind of disconnect from present day Otto emotionally. He always wanted to be with present day with Tom Hanks and Otto in the present day and the past kind of is in his life. But in the Swedish film, the past is something that comes every time Ove tries to commit suicide and it's also voiceover driven. So in the Swedish film, it's more like he remembers his life and his voiceover kind of retells his life for the audience every time he tries to kill himself so it and we had much more flashbacks in the swedish film the, sweet, the American version has lesser flashbacks and I think it was also Mark who wanted all the flashbacks to be about Sonia, the love of his life. So we don't have any flashbacks about Ove's or Otto's previous life or his childhood the way we had it in the book or in the Swedish film. So I think uh, Mark came in very cl- clearly with some things he wanted to do in his own way and influenced the scripts. Clearly, the the idea was never to do an exact version of the Swedish film. It was always to to change and and do uh, Mark's version of it, for sure.
0: Sometimes people criticize film studios of working with the same people a lot of the time. You know, a director can become a a studio favorite. A a DP always works the same director. Can you talk about the team that uh, Mark brought with him and why? Because I think it's, you know, a film can go bad in so many ways, you always have to like risk eliminate some stuff. Yeah, so Mark works very much like a lot of uh, filmmakers
1: on his level that he has his crew that he prefers to work uh, like his head of departments that he likes to bring with him, uh, which is very common. And that gives that shorthand and, and as you say, that uh, experience and the knowing that you speak the same language so a lot of the HODs on this film were people that is part of his normal kind of crew, like the editor Matt or uh, his executive producer Renee and uh, cinematographer Mattias. So there were a lot of uh, head of departments that came with him. I thought, I think from my perspective, that's great. It just gives me comfort. It gives him comfort and uh, he has great collaborators. So, so yeah, definitely. But we also had uh, HODs
0: that he hadn't worked before. So it was a you know, a mix. Sometimes people select the crew and cast a bit like, you know, you, you, from a buffet. like And everyone has the same list. They yeah. want, like, uh, Tom Hardy to be the lead in an action movie. They want the Linus yeah. and the Swiss DP, to DP their movie. But yeah. it mo- making a movie, it's all about people. Everyone yes. just Absolutely. doesn't gel. Yeah. Have you any thoughts about, you know, how you see other producers maybe, you know, setting, setting up their... Because it's a bit like setting up a soccer team. You can have uh, three great uh, strikers Mm -hmm. and they they can't collaborate. And then, you know, you have the worst team in the league when you, you know, paper. uh, It's a really good question. It's a big part of the
1: producer's job and the director's job to, to hire the right team. Because at the end of the day, when you're on set, the director sits behind a screen and the producer sits behind the screen. They are the ones making the movie. They are the ones who setting the light or choosing the costume, etc. The director and producer doesn't do that. So hiring the right people is key. And my view is I think I always want to work with directors that I trust, directors that I think uh, can do a good job. And then I think my job is to try to serve them so they can do the best job on set. Because if I make sure that the director has the right setup and the best possibilities... The director will do the best film and give the best material back into the editing so we can make the best version of the film. So I think uh, my job uh, in that sense is very much to help him or her. However, sometimes my view as a producer can be that I don't agree that the best thing for this director is to work with that DP because I might think that he needs or she needs Another DP, that doesn't mean that I always agree with the director. But uh, overall, my view is that I always want what's best for the director to make the best job. But in this case, uh, we, we agreed for sure uh, about all the choices. But it's it's a very, very hard, a big part of it. And you should spend a lot of time into finding the right team.
0: And going back to, you have had meetings with Tom Hanks. Mm. You know, he is positive. Are you keeping this to yourself? Like, how do you... <laughs> no, but we announced quite early that Tom was attached.
1: We, we knew that we couldn't uh, keep it a secret. But uh, that was still four years ago. It took quite some time to get the film off the ground. So yeah, And uh, David McGee also wrote a first draft that was fantastic. You know, we could also have just, like Hannes Holm did in the Swedish version, he wrote a script that we could basically shoot and... Mm-hmm. The first time Tom read it, he said, this is, you know, shootable. You know, let's go shoot it. So, but it still took a long time because you wait for people and people are busy and there are other things happening. And just because Tom was attached didn't mean that necessarily the film would happen, it would only happen if we all agreed that we had the rights team and the right resources and the right script. But it it took a few years to get it uh, in the right place. Yeah.
0: One key difference here, you wanted to produce it yourself. Yeah. And there's a big difference. For example, if Playtone had bought the rights to it, Mm. you know, after this, you know, I call it the honeymoon. Everybody's like (laughs) getting to know each (laughs) other, having a good time. Yeah. If you're just giving up the right to go back to the mothership and say, you know, this feels really good, you know, and then it's just like financial, you know, you you look to contracts, you add some parts, Mm. you change some parts, uh, you know, it's just a negotiation. Then you go visit the set, you know, you go to the premiere and that's it. Now, you know, be careful what you wish for. Like you're going to have to set this up as still an outsider, outsider producer. You can go into detail, how do you set up your like the company, you know, your yeah. your closest confidant SF Studios international team basically?
1: Yeah, so since uh, we had done two international films out of SF already, so we already had uh, a UK team. We had um, three people out of the UK and we had a company that was running out of the UK that we had done the other t- films from. But the way we did it was that we set up uh, a special purpose vehicle in uh, America that SF owned. And we had all the rights uh, remaining at SF. Platon was producing the film for us, but they weren't the rights holder for it. But we, we did everything together. Like Rita was the lead producer on there. And uh, uh, so uh, me and Rita have basically done, produced the film, like we've done everything together and like setting up the team and uh, with the script and the casting and crew and the financial aspects and the distribution aspects. So we really worked very close together. And um, the most challenging part of setting everything up was definitely in pre-production because uh, the pandemic was around uh, and we had Omicron that came back last year, if you remember, and that was exactly when we were in prep. So it was very hard for us to fly. We mostly only met on Zoom at that time and we decided to shoot the film in Pittsburgh. And when we were setting up the film in Pittsburgh, It was just complicated to not be in the same room and make all the decisions together. Uh, And also this was the time when we were going to decide the budget level of the film. And that is always a very sensitive discussion because the director has his or her view about how many shooting days is needed. And on the other hand, is the film too expensive? So we had those kind of discussions that was tough and sensitive and hard especially when we didn't meet but then actually we all spent 4 months in Pittsburgh together when we went into shooting during that time we we settled and we we got a budget level everyone was comfortable with and yeah i think in the end it's the difference when you make a film in in america in in relation to europe is that it's it's much more politics involved you have more managers and agents and lawyers, you have more layers uh, in the project. When you make things in Europe, it's it's a very flat kind of hierarchy. And and the middlemen uh, like the agents and and the lawyers don't have much power. They don't have much say. So it's it's much kind of easier to get things done while in America. It's much more of a chess game with all these pieces. So I think that's a big, big difference. Uh, Of course, the legal aspects, it's much more complicated with all the legal. And then you also have the unions uh, because in in Europe, it's kind of counterintuitive. You would think that we have stronger unions here, but it's uh, uh, the opposite. So the American labor unions for film industry is very, very strong. And this was, uh, you know, we had five or six different unions in the film you know, the Writers Guild and the Directors Guild and, and the Teamsters and uh, SAG, etc. So um, we had all the guild rules. So uh, and me more being used to working in Europe where you can, you're more flexible in how you do things. All the guilds give you quite rigid rules. So that's another aspect. But that, that's all practical. In the end, it's the same thing. You have a script. You need a good actor, you need a good director with a good camera, you know, DP And then, you know, at the end of the day, it's the same job But it's a lot of things around it that makes it more complicated from from a European perspective uh, I'd never really worked with a director on Mark's level As I've, you know, he's just a filmmaker on a completely different level He was so good, just, he took exactly the right close-ups all the time All the lines in the script, he just nailed them, you know, with the actors and. I just felt like for me as a producer to kind of oversee him on set just is a waste of everyone's time I just felt like he was so great at everything he did what I usually do is I try to see what you know what kind of support or help a director can need uh, if I hadn't worked with a director before I think the first few days on set is very crucial because you kind of see how the crew works and how the director interacts with the actors and then I make kind of a plan how present I need to be depending on how I see things evolving and then I usually am very present in days when I uh, foresee that things can be challenging or hard or when I can be of of help and then I try to be very present at those times but then I I I usually am much more present in the post-production and editing where I try to be super super present So it's very different from from time to time. On this one, I was in Pittsburgh the whole shoot because it was hard to travel back to Europe because of COVID. So I was on set every day, but I wasn't
0: spending uh, that much time on set. If we rewind a bit, you've talked to Tom Hanks, you know, you feel like, you know, you're going to do this. When did you like feel that you became collaborators for real? And how long did it take for him to sign on you talked about you know you have to have the, the script have to you know be in a certain shape to shoot it like have you had some insights yeah absolutely i mean i i remember clearly like an early
1: meeting i had in in playtone's office with him and rita when this was before we had a first draft and we were discussing something else and and I basically asked Tom, I don't even remember what it was like, do you think we should do it or that, this or that? And he said, yeah, in the end, I think it's up to you, boss. <laughs> and he said it to me, not like a joke. He said it like, you're the boss, you know, it, it's up to you. And it, it might sound silly, but, you know, him calling me boss, even though, you know, on paper, I'm his boss, but it just... Uh, a filmmaker, an actor on on that level. Saying that to me was something I will never forget that. It was like a strong (laughs) moment. But he, Tom is uh, so graceful in that sense. He doesn't have an ego at all. He's like the most down-to-earth person ever. Also with all the acclaim and his amazing career that he's just so nice to everyone. He's graceful to everyone. He's... Um, He's never stressed, he's never upset, at least never in front of, of uh, collaborators or crew or, or other actors. He's, he's just the ultimate pro and he he has positive energy. And, you know, I, I just, when I watch him uh, work as an actor, he just, he makes me want to be a better version of myself. And I think he, he does that to everyone on set. Having someone like Tom Hanks just being like that it affects the crew, all the rest of the cast, because he behaves so, you know, spotless in every instance.
0: So he sets the stage. A version of, like, Tom Cruise, how he's, like, you know, action. I guess so, I guess so. I exactly. can imagine he's, like, no, emotionally... Exactly, like... he was like, and I, and I get the feeling,
1: like, Tom Hanks doesn't want to settle. He always wants to just be better and better and yeah. better. And it was uh, such a privilege to work with an actor that could show that kind of example. Uh, and I also know that I had a dinner with Mark Forrester during the shoot. And I asked, you know, Mark has worked with some of the biggest actors uh, in Hollywood, like he worked with Daniel Craig and Brad Pitt and Kate Winslet and Will Ferrell, et cetera, et cetera, Hillberry. And he said, you know, hands down, Tom is the best actor i ever worked with because he was just, um, every, yeah, he's just top of his game. He's like a samurai. He's a master. I would also say that Tom was, once he read Dave's script, which he loved, like we all did, and he got comfortable and trusted Mark, which he decided to do very early on in the development phase, uh, he was also very, you know, he really let Mark do his film. You know, it wasn't like Tom came in, he has the pedigree that where he could come in and, have opinions about close-ups or what you should do. That is not the way that Tom has made this film. He trusted Mark. He loved working with him on set and uh, he let Mark do his film, mm. which is also very graceful. I think a lot of movie stars uh, on Tom's level micromanage and they kind of, but that that is
0: not at all the way Tom uh, has worked on this film. And now I can imagine you know a bit more how it worked in Hollywood. Like when do you start locking in the the talent the director I think in this in this case which I think is normally when you
1: have an actor driven film like this in this case I remember very clearly it was probably two years ago when when Tom came to us and said yeah I made a slot uh, in my calendar so we'll shoot Otto here you know this is the slot and when he gave us that slot that was when the film you know then it's happening we knew it was happening because before that it was like he loved the script yeah da, da, but it, you can never kind of it's you know he needs to decide mm. uh, and he has a calendar he has a bunch of other stuff going on obviously so when he said I'll yeah I'll dedicate this slot you know then we just started uh, so then we said to the crew this is when we're shooting and I went up to the board of Bonnier and said, "We need a financing. We need a green light commitment here because Tom is. This is the slot he's
0: given us." That was my next question. How was that conversation? You're asking someone to really open up the wallet.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I joked before saying, like, how hard of a decision is it to green light the movie with Tom Hanks? But. The film was, it's an expensive film based also on the fact that this is not a superhero sequel franchise movie. This is a film about normal people. It's a drama comedy. It has a sad ending. You know, there are things with it that aren't like obvious. And we also had discussions. Is this an indie movie or is it more of a Hollywood big star vehicle kind of movie? And obviously there were different kind of budget levels on that. We ultimately decided to make a Hollywood star vehicle kind of film. So we wanted it to feel and look like a studio film. And that was very much also what Mark is great at and what has, he's done very well before. So, uh, and that is uh, a more expensive uh, way of doing this film. Uh, so, yeah, it was by far the most expensive and biggest risk that SF has ever taken on a film. And SF has been financing and producing films for over 100 years. And this is by far, by far the the most the biggest risk that they've ever taken so that was of course a, a delicate process to get everyone on board with with signing that check uh it was a long
0: long and delicate process uh, that's a big check even we talk about EuropaCorp, like absolutely. they don't even absolutely they don't even no. cash those no. big yeah. big checks for themselves you, you spread the risk yeah absolutely and
1: that is the normal, the business model for Scandinavian films when SF Finance is that they always spread the risk also on Scandinavian films. So here we we had long discussions and ultimately decided that we wanted to take the full financing uh, ourselves because we thought that was the thing to do, because it, we thought it was the right thing to do. And maybe to even move fast enough. It's... Yes. And it was also interesting financially at this point of this, uh, of the project because we always wanted this to be a theatrical film, but this was during the height of the Corona pandemics. We greenlit this film in a place where the theaters were basically closed uh, or were about to open up again. We didn't know at that time uh, if this was going to be a streaming film or a theatrical or a, a hybrid version, but uh, we wanted it to be theatrical, but we didn't know that. We didn't have a, a theatrical studio attached to the film. It was, we, we owned all the rights. and. We put the film into production in Pittsburgh and that was when we then went to the marketplace with the film and said, the film is happening, this is the script, we have Tom Hanks and we're shooting it in Pittsburgh, who's interested to partner with us and, and
0: that, to distribute it. And that's very interesting because, you know, a lot of movies that are, are called Hollywood movies, mm. they're financed like this mm. and, you know, companies like Wild Bunch, Film Nation, mm. they help put this yeah. type of movies together. But it's getting harder and harder because of the uncertainty. Yeah. There have been less and less movies yes. financed. Like, you know, they look like Hollywood movies. that have Hollywood stars in it. But one third of all the movies, even the biggest stars make or financed like this. Yeah. Sometimes a bit outside the studios, maybe because, you know, studios are a bit risk averse. Yeah. So some movies has to be made outside of it. Yeah. And then they become sleeper hits, like John Wick was not a studio movie, you know, and it became a franchise. So that's like a a sort of intake, you know, a lot of IPs are born that way outside of the big systems, like because it's impossible to know what's going to work. Uh, To be honest. Yeah,
1: and then when we, that's right, and when we brought the film to the market, we really had uh, three really good options. We could either make it more of an independent distribution model where we had different distributors in different territories. um, Or we could also make it into a global streaming film. We had offers like that. Or uh, we had a global studio uh, offers, which uh, is the one we took in the end, which is the Sony route because we sold it to Sony. And Sony is a studio that has distribution everywhere. And Sony is one of the big studios in Hollywood or the only big studio in Hollywood that doesn't have its own streaming service. Mm. So Warner Brothers and Disney and Paramount, they all have their streaming service. But Sony does not. So yeah. Sony is the one that is still focusing on the theatrical experience.' Yeah. the the prime product for them still. So and
0: but, that was but when they're, they also they're also they they're also very savvy. like yes. they have sold, you know, it can absolutely week it's like a week per week film per film evaluation. Absolutely. didn't they have Greyhound and they yes. sold it off? Yes, Another Tom yeah. Hanks movie. Yeah. like, yeah, no, absolutely.
1: No, but they. Th- I think some of the other studios, the pros and cons is, is that they have their streaming services, so sometimes they make films directly for the streamers, etc., and and that has been, you know, obviously a very turbulent and, and hot topic in, in Hollywood, but mm-hmm. Sony's pitch to us was always, we love this as a theatrical experience, we want to do it for the, th- the, the cinemas, and, and we were super happy with the choice of going with Sony, and they've been an amazing partner now when we launched the film They are they really love the movie and believe in it um, But they've been amazing And they really committing
0: hard to make this into yeah, it It feels like a Sony yes. movie yeah, I, every, And it looked, you know, f- yeah. for everyone It's like, yeah, Sony's remaking yeah, this Swedish yeah. uh, movie we, And
1: Sony did actually remake The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo So yeah. they, they did that the, the big difference was that they uh, produced uh, it as well Like they financed it all the way
0: from the get-go where we did that, and they came in as a distributor. But yeah, you're right. If we can rewind a bit and talk about the actual deals, because uh, you talk about packaging and the market? Because we talked briefly about the, the international film market, American mm-hmm. film marketing. now. You know, projects that are made, they get money from somewhere, and then, you know, they're up for sale. Yeah. And a lot of the time, they only the upfront money they get, it doesn't even cover the actual expense That's of true. the movie. But uh, you've had uh, two strong packages mm. that you have. I mean, to be honest, from my opinion, like crazy great deals. <laughs> Can you talk about Horizon Line first? The package, like, uh, and where where it was sold. Then the... yeah. So the the business model that we're talking
1: about is that you finance the film yourself with with risk money with equity your package, you get the film up and running, and then you sell it to the market. And that is, of course, a more risky way of doing it, because as you say, if the the value of the the package is lower than the budget or the production expenses, you lose money directly. But on the other hand, you can have a big upside if it's the other way around. And I, I think that we are in a golden opportunity right now because 10 years ago there were studios or buyers, theatrical buyers. But now we have all of them and we have like five to 10 big streamers that is all competing for the best content. So if you bring good content, good films with good talent and actors attached, uh, there is so, so many buyers, so much need for good content. So I think this model of taking your own risk and financing and then selling is it's very very the right time to do that model of course you need access to to all that money which I've had through SF because SF is a distributor and uh, owned by Bonnier so there
0: there is equity and they have different companies like it's a a conglomerate exactly it's like a family owned mini Swedish powerhouse
1: no, but uh, so we we were in both these examples that you mentioned, we were basically profitable already when we started shooting the movies yeah. because
0: we sold them to really good deals. Talk about the first, like the package, uh, the Horizon Line.
1: Package. Yeah, so Horizon Line is very much more of a, an action movie, a survival action movie. And I would say that the concept in itself and the script, it's a very, it was a very tight and a good read. Written by the script writers Josh and Matt, who wrote Tank Cloverfield Lane. So I would say that the concept in itself was very much the driving force in the package. We had Alison Williams, who was the star, and she was, of course, helping a lot as well. But she's starting Get Out. Exactly.
0: And, it, it, and it... it was a genre movie, but you know, they have, you know, with that script, the mm-hmm. concept, and once you got a, a good. Scream Queen or you know then you it's a package like exactly and and what was interesting with that film in the end was that
1: we sold the film initially also as a theatrical film everywhere and then went to STX so STX um, was the sales agent for it and they bought it for America and and the UK but then the rest of the world they sold it to other distributors so uh, but then when the film was done pandemic hit, the theaters were closed So uh, a lot of the territories were never released theatrically, but we then remade the deal so it became directly a streaming film. So in a lot of territories, uh, it never came to cinemas, it just came directly to Amazon or Epix or uh, Hulu or Netflix were different in different territories. And I would say financially in the end, that was probably better for us than if it would have been a theatrical film because uh, the streamers pay so well.
0: the timing was perfect exactly.
1: No so that, that so we were kind of lucky in that sense. Then I th- I would say that a film like that it doesn't make that big of an impact because it doesn't become a theatrical event. You don't see big PNA spends anywhere. it just becomes like a film on a streamer in different territories. so and those kind of films they are so do you see so many of them like good commercial films directed for streamers, and some of them catch fire and become a big phenomenon, but most of them just pass by mm. in people's streaming services, and they don't make an impact. So that's the downside. I would say the upside is financially can be great, but if you want to connect and make an impact with your films, theatrical is the big thing, because you have all the marketing span, you have the PR, you see posters everywhere, and Now we're in the middle of that process with A Man Called Otto and the next couple of weeks that
0: film will be everywhere and it's impossible to not be aware of A Man Called Otto. But with Horizon Line, you must have learned so much with the deals and actually, you know, collecting this money. Yeah. Like, (laughs) you know, even if you sign it, you never know like what, uh, (laughs) when you get what. Like uh, you need to make a, you know, cash flow Plan. I've learned so much and it, I've also learned it in a time when the international
1: marketplace is changing dramatically like in the last 3 4 years everything has changed so much with the, with the pandemic and the like the pandemic has happened just as all the streaming services also just happened. So it's changed dramatically twice in a very short amount of time. So what you thought was the value in Germany five years ago is totally different now with everything that's changed. So if you have a film that has value in all over the world, it's it's a huge marketplace. And theatrically it's hard,
0: but there is the streamers are everywhere and they need good content as well. Going back to Otto, how would you say like the experience has been making two movies with the same author. Because mm. Fredrik Bachmann okay. has, uh, can you talk about what you think from his experience, like having a producer say, you know, yeah, Tom Hanks wants to play the lead in the book? I think when I called him and said that,
1: he, th- he thought it was a joke or he, he never thought it would happen. You know, I, 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 maybe he didn't think it was a joke, but he was like, didn't take it seriously. So I remember clearly I had a lunch with him and, and Neda Bachmann, his, his uh, manager and wife, when I said, the, like, I'm going to Pittsburgh in a month and we're shooting the movie. <laughs> and he was kind of he was amazed, you know, that, would, that it actually happened. And he's so proud, too, that this is a Swedish film in that sense. He just feels so I'm um, happy that he has been con- contributing to the Swedish film industry becoming more international, and he's he takes big pride in that. And of course, it's a it's a big testament of the strength of his story that Tom Hanks and Mark Forrester and David McGee and and uh, artists like that wants to work from his material. But he's he takes pride in the Swedish aspect of it, and that it uh, has helped you know, the uh, the old grand old lady of Swedish Film SF to become more an international company. So, yeah, he's he's very proud and he's very happy with with the results. When I produced films in Swedish, there is such a clear uh, mold of uh, what a film can cost in Sweden if you make it, to make it work, you know, what kind of financing you can raise. But when you make films English language, A film can cost $1 million or they can cost $200 million. There is no mold. You know, there is all the opportunities are there. And uh, I always kind of think when I develop international films, uh, I try to build the projects as good as I can from the ground up. Good stories, entertainment, emotional connection with strong themes. Um, And then I kind of evaluate as the project is developed, and it takes years, as you know, to develop a project, I kind of see where it's going. Like, is this a $1 million movie or a $200 million movie? And I never, I always get asked early on, oh, is this a $10 million movie? Is this a 40 million, usually by my boss, uh, or if I have a board or a financier. And I always try to dodge that question because I don't really know. You know, it, it really depends on how good is the script in the end. What level of actors say yes to the film? What level of ambition do you have on the visuals, on the effects? It's not as easy as keep the costs down that makes it more profitable. Sometimes I would even say that uh, if you spend more like Horizon Lion was a film that was very visual effects driven with action. We spent more money on that film on the visual effects and the action. And I think the value of the film increased because of that. If we had made the film cheaper, I think the value would have been less. So it's not as easy as just keep it be, be make it for less money. Then you make more. It's not as easy. So uh, build a project piece by piece, get the right talent, the right actors on board. And then you kind of figure out where it fits and then you set the budget level for it. I don't know if that was the answer to your yeah, question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So it's a complex uh, world, like uh, this film about Bjorn Borg that uh, I mentioned before was also a film that we we made it in the end for maybe twice as much as we thought we would do when we started developing it. But that's because maybe if you add Shia LaBeouf... Exactly. Like the script turned out so well. Ronnie's script was so... People loved it. We had Shia LaBeouf. We just put on more resources and then we made it for more visually. We put more resources. So it just grew into a bigger film than we thought initially. So I think you should always have like an open mindset and and follow the path and see what makes most sense
0: for the project when it comes together. Do you ever get familiar with someone like Tom Hanks or Rita? Like, (laughs) you know, how familiar can... One gets like yeah. I mean, Rita and me have been working closely for for these
1: uh, five years, so I, we we are very familiar. We have spoken almost every day for four years. Of course, as a producer, you don't work as closely with the star as uh, the director does. So uh, no, but yeah, yeah, you you get familiar after a, a journey like this, and and I've loved working with with obviously with Tom, as I said, but also Rita. I think she's been. She's a force of nature, like Sonia in, in uh, A Man Called Otto. Uh, Rita is also a force of nature, and I think we we complete each other very well as, as uh, producers, so it's been a great journey. And also Mark Forrester, we've you know, spent so much time with him, and he's been a
0: fantastic collaborator and, and filmmaker. So, yeah, but you, yeah. Yes and no And what do you think they How they perceive you I I know it's a super hard question When you have a good collaboration You have to see each other as as equals
1: And you have to treat each other as equals And hear each other out And I think we've had that culture in this project So uh, yeah I mean you have to find your own uh, way of working Uh, As I said It's it's much more of a political thing To make films in, in Hollywood on this level But I I am a very straightforward person. I don't kind of play the political games. I don't come with half truths. I always, I'm a very straightforward person. I'm very honest. And even though I kind of have to play some of the political games, I always do it in a straightforward way. So I am myself. I'm not playing a role. And I think you have to be yourself. And I think going into this kind of Hollywood uh, world and trying to, to be someone who, who you're not, I don't think that's that works. But uh, so it's, it's kind of, you have to find a balance where you change with the environment you come to, but you still remain kind of true to your personality. So I try to, to just do that and I think it worked pretty well.
0: Yeah, and also I think there's a bit mystery mm. to you because mm. actually you're the one who got the financing. At the end of the day, that's the actual hierarchy. It's a possibility that you forget that within this big, you know, thing, like who's, who's paying the bills actually. Uh, As a producer who, you
1: know, I started making small films in Sweden for a couple of million dollars. And then here I was still in charge of a $50 million film. You know, I was ultimately the the guy responsible for that money. I had the responsibility to the board in Sweden and I was you know looking at how we distributed all those money that that's a huge responsibility I mean like a producer is the CEO of a, of the movie basically like what does a CEO do in a corporation that's the same thing and you can go around as a CEO and not look busy at all, but if you if you don't do anything in a couple of weeks, the company, you just start to feel like this is not going well. Yeah, And it's the same with the producer, you always have to be a couple of steps ahead. You think of it as you're an entrepreneur basically building this company or this film from the ground up. So, uh, yeah, that's that's really the mindset. And what's next, Fredrik? Really? This journey of doing international films is what I'm going to only focus on from now on. I'm going to still live in Sweden, but uh, it's it's so hard when you've started to understand the big global market out there to continue to only do things in local language and only reach such a small, small fraction of the total audience. I love to connect with people. I love when you entertain and, and when you can convey themes and messages that you feel are important to a global audience. I think it's it's amazing. So uh, I'm going to continue doing international global films and be based uh, out of um, Sweden. I've been more and more interested in the last two years about only doing stories that I feel has something more meaningful to say, even though I I love mainstream films and i'm you know i love to entertain i also i only want to do projects that have something more meaningful to say about the world or about humanity uh, maybe i'm getting old i don't know what it is but that's that's the focus from now on all right Friedrich how did it feel talking about Otto? no it felt great to talk about it it's been such a long journey
0: really good because when we recorded most of the podcast, it was before release. Uh, how was how auto done internationally at the cinemas? I think we were very comfortable that the film was working with audiences because
1: we had tested the film several times and we knew that it was a crowd pleaser. You know, the, the audience tests were, were really, really high. But What was kind of against us was that we were targeting an older audience And the older audiences in cinemas haven't been coming back, really, after COVID. So we were one of the big films coming after COVID that was really trying to aim to get them back. And we had a release plan where we didn't open to 3,000 screens, but rather we had a staggered release where we opened 500 prints and then 2,000 and then 3,000. And that turned out to be really... ...appropriate for the film because we had a great word of mouth and we built from that. So that was more kind of a release that you have more on smaller movies. And we did that even though this was a studio release. And it was, that was great. And then American audiences really loved the film. uh, And it's been going really, really well internationally. America is obviously the biggest territory, but the film has done amazingly well in Mexico. Really well in Australia and UK. Germany, there has also been some really surprising territories like Indonesia, was was a territory that just overperformed
0: massively. So it's gone it's well all over the world. The movie reached more than $100 million box, box of half yeah. nationally. Was that like always the hope? Like if we get over the, if we reach. I would say that, yeah. So we, we, we reached that
1: hope. And I, I think that if this would be before COVID. Th- I think we would have all kind of just assumed we have Tom Hanks, you know, and we have an IP, like a book, a best-selling book. But in the post-COVID era, this was quite uh, a feat for us. And I think we, without bragging too much, I think we have helped to give some hope to the industry for films like this that are not superhero films or visually, visual effect-driven spectacles that you can get audience to come back if they're an older audience for these kind of films. That was a big question mark and otto has been one of the films that has helped to give that uh, hope
0: back into the theatrical landscape and the budget for the film was 50 million yes more right. or less. yes exactly and, and if a movie makes a hundred million dollars at the box office you don't necessarily get a hundred million dollars no it's in the back account so you
1: could say that you know if we if you sell a hundred million dollar box office what comes back to the studio or the financiers is about half of that hundred. But that, then you have um, all the money coming from the streamers. If you sell it to a streamer and the TV and the home entertainment that comes later. But that's part of the calculation though. 100%. Before going in. Exactly. Exactly. No, but uh, Otto has become, uh, everyone's happy with the, with the outcome. And not not only the the Sony and SF Studios, the financier, but also the filmmakers and the movie stars is happy. But I think the most, the thing that I'm most happy about is that the the audience are happy they, that that they are, the in the end, the audience are, uh, they are the, the employers. And I mean, it's not like I work for anyone else. It's the audience who, who we try to satisfy. And the Zoom has really tough people and it's it's been an audience crowd-pleaser, which we we hoped. Mm. So that's a lot of fun.
0: So, but what's next for you now? You're setting up your new company, Hope Studios. Yes, so
1: I have started this company, Hope Studios, which has a very strong mission that we will make films that are very uh, commercial and global. English language with major actors and and talent based on both original stories and and, uh, IPs. But uh, the one thing that will make us stand out is that we always want to make stories that have something meaningful to say, even though we have a very commercial outset. So we want to be uh, a mission-driven studio in that sense. We want to do commercial stories that also have something positive or meaningful to say about us or the world or the world we live in. So that's the, the profile. And we're launching Hope Studios now in 2023. And um, hopefully it's the thing I'm going to do for the rest of my career. We have a 20 year plan for what we want to do with, with the company. I feel like Otto. Could that be, have been like a Hope Studios film? 100%. That is a perfect example of what we want to do at Hope Studios. Um, it's a film that's a crowd pleaser, it's, it's appealing and entertaining and emotional, but also has very meaningful themes and, uh, and something valuable to say about us and our communities and trust and uh, how people perceive each other and how to overcome troubles and grief in life. So it's definitely a perfect uh, Hope Studios kind of film. We are not only going to do films in that genre. We can do any genre, really. So we're we, it's just that
0: we want to to stick to this mission. I'd like to encourage everyone to check out the Hope Studios. dot website. Uh, we'll be trying to inspire the world. That, like that—that that is the ambition. We can't get enough of talking about films. <laughs> exactly. Uh, next week we'll listen to a conversation with Charlotte Wells. Do you have has she been on your radar, the director of? After sun. Absolutely, and I'm looking forward to that podcast. Best of luck.